Yeah, yeah. Um, I just feel that the Holy Spirit has been saying the same thing right from Lance's word to the prophetic singing to what Tim prayed to the songs we spoke. I feel like I don't need to speak. Because... <laughs> so thanks for all the setup and. Because the message today is we're doing a series on the foundation of kingdom love and kingdom values. I feel like God has been speaking already to our hearts about love. Uh, All the words and all the things that have been happening. So as I mumble and stumble through what I'm going to say, I know that the Holy Spirit is doing something already. And it doesn't matter what I say in a sense, because you're hearing him speak to you. All right? So I am going to think and and talk to you a little bit about kingdom love, because what I've discovered and what the scripture teaches is that kingdom love is not natural love. It's a different kind of love. And it's not a love that we naturally experience. It's an, it's an experience of God. And I want to use for my reference text 1 John 4.19. We love him because he first loved us. One of the um, things that I noticed, Russ, you mentioned last week a couple of texts that some of the translations don't do a good job on. In the NIV and, and CEV and a few others, they say, we love because he first loved us. It doesn't say we loved him. And I find that an interesting focus because this is a proportional kind of verse, a proportional relationship. We love because he first loved us. The more I experience his love for us, the more I love him. And so if we want to move into deeper experience of worship, he loves us. And what we encounter in that He loves us, changes how we love him and how we love others. It's a cause and effect, but God is an initiator. And the overflow of his character comes through in verses like this. I want to illustrate this by going firstly into a little bit of my own story and how God initiated this type of love in my life. Uh, Cindy, I I really associate with what you said about being humbled because God is doing things. And it's not about, I'm not sharing this to talk about me, I'm sharing this to talk about what he has done. My parents were young when they got married. They were 17 and 18 and I was conceived prior to that. And so a rushed marriage in their era was arranged And um, they were two young people trying to work out how to do life together. And they were needy in their own ways. Last uh, couple of weeks, Russ has mentioned people have like this bowl that we take to others and ask them to put something into that bowl in relationships to make us feel better. And my understanding of my parents was that they were two people asking each other to put something in that bowl. And then when I came along, I was another contributor where I was meant to have something to put into that bowl in their lives. I know that 
there were words used to each other and around in the family where you didn't feel so wanted in the family. There were words like, if you don't behave, we're going to take you back to the orphanage where we got you. Or don't be so useless, or you're an idiot. And so for a young child and for my siblings that followed, these were sorts of expressions that formed in us an understanding of character and feeling worthless. My parents wanted to get their children off their hands as quickly as possible. They made that quite clear. They were waiting for us to grow up so they could go out and do their life and move on and not have to worry about the whole parenting things. So as such, I and my brothers and sisters probably didn't feel loved. And I remember having significant experiences in my childhood where I would do things to feel wanted. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to experience that feeling of security and being needed. Richard and Kathy are running a course called Growing Kids God's Way, and I would totally recommend the course if you want to bring up your children to know things about kingdom life and kingdom values. And one of the chapters they'll be doing is called Memorials. And memorials are occasions that you create as a family to try and bring the family together to celebrate things that are significant for you. Well, the couple of things that our family had were family mottos. One of those mottos was, look after number one, because nobody else will look after you. And so we immediately started this sort of selfishness uh, and an approach to get as much as we could because nobody else was going to look after us. Be ambitious, but don't be people-orientated. Use people to get your goals. And I'm, I, you know, that's, that's who I was, and I... I'm not trying to denigrate my parents, but I am saying that's what was forming me as a person. Selfishness was surviving in the family. Meal times were like a feeding frenzy. <laughs> it was all in, you know. Eat as much as you can, even if you don't need it. Put downs was a family sport. I would pick on Johan. I met Johan, and you know, and I'd spend time putting him down. Why? Why was I doing that? Because I wanted to feel better about myself. So I put other people down. And that was a family sport. I had no moral compass. I was like a boat adrift on any wind or wave that came along. And I had no understanding of what an absolute was. That was my life. But God changed my life. He intervened. He changed the direction of my life. He changed the direction of my life. And I would not have met this lady. I would not have had that son because I changed under God's hand and changed the direction of my life. And the, there was a man who helped me when I moved to Hobart to follow my hockey career. And he started to challenge me about the Bible and reading a couple of little books that would help me understand what God was about. And at the end of that, I asked Jesus to come into my life because I was aware that I had sin in my life. It was very strong. I was aware of the things I'd been doing. And Romans 5.8 sort of encapsulated the verse for me. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While I was still sinning, Christ died for me. Christ died for me. It made such a difference. 
I knew my sin life was huge, but then I discovered God was bigger. And he loved me. And I felt that love come into my life for the first time. Recently I went to a funeral in Burnie. And uh, that particular guy that helped me 40-odd years ago, um, was, we were there at the same funeral. I went up to him and I thanked him. With tears, I tell you. Thank you for helping me find Jesus. It made such a difference in my life. It changed where I went. It changed what I believed in. It changed what love means. It gave me an internal capacity for life. Life to the full. So I thank him. And I feel like I'm like that woman who came to Jesus and cried over his feet and then wiped the tears off with her hair. And the people around didn't understand what was going on. And Jesus said in John, uh, Luke 7, 47, Therefore I say to you, her sins, which were many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But to whom little is given, the same loves little. He who is forgiven much, loves much. What is this love? It's agape love. That's a Greek word that tries to describe love in the Bible. It's one of the few Greek words that are used. It's the original, it's the highest form of love. God didn't love us with a romantic love or an affection like a family member or a, or a friend or a BFF. Uh, but he loved us with a steady and resolute intention of his will to do our highest good. Now, these four Greek words, I just want to dwell on them for a moment, but try to make one point from it. There's those four words you've probably heard, eros, storge, phileia, and agape. And they're characterised by romantic love, family love, brotherly love, and God's divine love. Now, the point that I want to make is that there is two forms of that kind of love in, say, eros, there's a legitimate form and there's a corrupted form. And each of those, in storge, in philea, and, and, well, this is the point. When you get to agape, there's no corruption of the form of love. So we know eros, you know, we know that that means a, a pursuit of another person where you really love them, you desire them, you want to have a, a powerful identification with them. And so Song of Songs or Song of Solomon 7 verse 10 is one of those kind of verses. I am my beloved's and my desire is to, his desire is towards me. It's a romantic, it's an attachment, it's a pursuit, it's a desire. And that's the wonderful, wholesome, covenantal kind of moral love that we can have. The corruption, of course, is the erotic love that we see so much of where it becomes illicit, immoral and lustful. And I'm aware that the teaching of Scripture in 1 John 2, 15 and 16 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. For everything, if, sorry, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. So there's a a legitimate and covenantal kind of love, and there's a, a, a corruption of that kind of love. 
Eros is a vital component of marriage, but it can't sustain a marriage over the long haul. After time, we need something richer and more profound than Eros. We need companionship for Leia, and above all, we need agape, that wholesome benevolence that comes to us. If agape can't be distorted, it is the platform for relationships. It is the default when marriages hit trouble and distress. We return to what is love from God's point of view. And it helps us to recalibrate, doesn't it, Fiona? It helps me to recalibrate. Let's just it straight. I married an angel. You... Obviously. Agape challenges my selfishness when I'm wondering why the other person is so unreasonable. Uh, agape can inspire us because I don't conform to selfish thinking, but I'm transformed by an encounter with the character of Jesus. It's a selfless, unconditional type of love that helps people to forgive one another, to respect one another, to serve one another day in and day out. Now, what I want to say is my focus is not agape love. I'm not trying to get more agape love into my life. I'm trying to get more of Jesus into my life. I'm trying to get... I'm, I'm trying to get more agape. No, I'm trying to get more Jesus in my okay. life, Russ. I'll try to write it down. All right. Agape is an outcome. And that's what that verse, 1 John, uh, 1 John 4.19 is saying. We love him because he first loved us. It's an outcome. Now, this is where we get crowd participation. I want all of you to take your fingers like this and put them in your ears like that. And now, uh, can you put up on the, the screen 1 John 4.19 again, please? Now, I want you to all say out loud that verse. We loved him because he first loved us. Okay, thank you. Why did I make you do that? Just to make you look silly. <laughs> no. When you put your fingers in your ears, you, you start cutting out the external kind of voices and you start to hear more of the internal sounds that are going on. The tone changes. You can probably, in silence, hear your heart beating. And it all sounds a bit weird. And that is like uh, when the inner voice of self-interest is more dominant than the voice of God trying to reach to you. Self-acceptance, self-interest and self-protection are those kinds of things that go on when we've got our fingers in our ear. We're trying to block out the outer voice and they're the inner voice. Um, I want to reference a scripture in Psalm 32, which I have spent so much time in my life to help me take my fingers out of my ears so that I could hear God more so that I could become transparent, so that I could hear what God was trying to say to me in his love. Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. 
when I kept silent, and that's a key thing, when I try and keep things silent from God, my bones grow old uh, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And there's a reason why it says Selah there. You've got to stop and think. I've felt that. I know what that's like. I know what it's like to be under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I know what it's like when I'm letting myself down and the others around me when I've allowed sin to preoccupy my thinking, my thought life, my actions. Verse 5. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess the transgressions of my soul and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Or in some versions it says, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What I love about this is that God not only forgives sin, he also forgives the guilt around that sin. And that's so freeing. When I actually open up my life and agree with what God is trying to say, Fingers out. I only try to hide my sin if I'm in fear of being caught or being embarrassed. This has been said three times already today. 1 John 4.18 There is no fear in love. God is trying to say something to someone here today. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment. He who fears has not been made perfect in love. God is speaking and he wants to replace somebody's fear in here today with love. He wants you to agree with him and align with his word and release you from that fear that is holding you. And I'm letting the Holy Spirit do whatever he's doing with you but at the end of this service, if you feel like you haven't been able to release or come into agreement with what God's saying, then I'd encourage you to come forward and get some prayer with someone else. Because last night I spent a lot of hours um, awake and praying and it seemed like God was saying, this is going to be a battle for someone tomorrow and it's going to take more than a quick prayer. It's going to need a breakthrough. So I'm encouraging you, if it's on your heart now, if God is speaking to you about fear and it hasn't been replaced with his love, today's the day. If we know that God will totally accept us, we will reveal what he can, what he can already see. We don't want to be like Adam in the garden who went and hid. And God says, Adam, where are you? We want to not be hiding. We don't want to be running away. Attempting to keep sin hidden from God is the ultimate act of selfishness and self-protection. It's keeping our fingers in our ears and he knows why we're hiding and he's wanting to stop us resisting his cleansing love. We know this verse, 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. And he will forgive us and cleanse us from all, all, past, present, future. He will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the cleansing power of the love of God. This act of confession, 
helps us come into alignment with that truth. 1 John 1, 7, two verses earlier. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, there's the definition of where we want to go to, into the light. We want to bring things into the light. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. I, I, I want to reiterate that invitation. Is there someone here who wants to be free of that fear? God wants to do something for you today. In, in moving to the end, what I was thinking of doing was encouraging us to come back to a place of worship. The worship that we had at the start of this service was so awesome. It was heart-touching. It was spirit-touching. It was soul-changing. And we want to come back to that. But I just want to give a couple of points about worship that might help us grow in an area of how to respond to God with love. Some people divide this response love into two categories. The first is that when I'm praying, I'm trying to show love for God through gratitude. And another group of people would say... I'm also trying to show love for God through the excellence of his nature when I'm praying. Now, what do I mean by those? Love that springs from gratitude is like these verses here in the um, uh, first one, Psalm 116. I love the Lord because he heard my voice and my supplications. And 1 John 4.19, we love him because he first loved us. I've only said that about five times now, so hopefully... You might have memorised it by the time we leave church today. These are legitimate forms of worship, but they are the most fundamental level of worship because it's got the word because. It's a transactional kind of love. It's a transactional kind of uh, reaction to God. I love you because you're doing this for me. So there's a degree of selfishness that's even in this kind of response in prayer. And so we can move beyond that. There's nothing wrong with it. I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's um, bad. I'm just saying it's probably the, the, the most immature level of worship. A higher level is where we think about the excellence or the character of God. One, uh, Colossians 1.17 And he is before all things, and all things hold together. And in him all things hold together. Psalm 147, verse 5. Great is our Lord, and abundant in his, his power. His understanding is beyond measure. God is infinite. He's, he's self-existent. He doesn't need us. He is without origin. He self-sustains. There's nothing he needs, and there's nothing he needs to do to flourish. He's immutable. He doesn't change. He never changes in any of his responses from the past to the future. So there's so much more about God we can worship when we think about the excellence. And I read books like A.W. Tozer, which gets mentioned every week in this church. Um, uh, the Pursuit of... Uh, of uh, no. Anyway, I can't think of the book, the book title. But I love him because he has helped me think about higher ways of worship. And it's been so uh, wonderful 
to uh, meditate on who God is because it helps me in that he loves me so I can love him. It helps me in that part. Um, and so in that form of worship where we're, we're concentrating on the excellence of God's nature, it's, um, it's less selfish and it's a, um, a greater way of showing gratitude. But it's still a little bit rational. It's still a bit thinking through. There is another level, a purer form. And that's where I say, I love you and I don't know why, God. I, I can't explain it. I feel it. And I want to explode with it. In actual fact, I get to the point where I want to abandon everything I'm thinking, everything that I am believing, and I just want to behold you. I just want to move into your presence. So at that point, I think I should invite the worship team to come back because this is a supra-rational form of worship. It doesn't say any becauses. It just says, I love you. We're looking at who God is. We're looking at his face. We're not looking at his hands of provision. We're just looking at who he is. The angels declared around the throne in Isaiah 6, verse 3. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. And that was cried continually in heaven. And we can cry out here around the throne with verses like Psalm 40, verse 16. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. I, 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 I expand what I understand of you, Father. Expand it. Take me to a place I've not been before. I know there's no cap on knowledge of you, the knowledge of the holy. That was that A.W. Tozer book. <laughs> there's no cap to who God is. We should be able to continue to walk into a relationship of worship and, and God continue to stream things into our lives so that we feel more, we see more, and we overwhelmed more. Psalm 145 verse 1, I will extol you, my King, O God, my King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. I will love you, O Lord, my strength. Let's stand. Let's close our eyes. Let the Holy Spirit finish what he started here today. Let's worship him with no because, only in love.